Well, friends, it's great delight to be here as in these four weeks as we talk about kind of the theology of worship. For I figure that we know the elements of a church service. We know that we're going to sing, we know that we're going to pray or listen to the scriptures read and taught. But I find, at least at home, that there isn't great depth in understanding why we do what we do. Adding to that the kind of contemporary issue that people think regular church attendance is twice a month. Now, it might be a little different here, I'm not sure, though some of the pastors at Trinity uh, think that probably that's becoming more and more of an expectation or a standard in the US as well. But certainly at home, if a, a person does up twice a month, they see themselves as being very committed to this church. Now, when I first became a Christian, when I was 13, uh, it wasn't just you went to church twice a month, it's you went to church twice a Sunday. You were expected to come to church to the morning worship and the evening. We used to call it a gospel service, kind of a youth service. And notice that just in the course of my own life, how our expectations have changed. So it's a good question to ask, not just what do we do in a church service, but why do we do it and how do we think we should benefit from doing it Regularly, So that's kind of driving my uh, interest in this four-part series. Now, I love you guys asking questions along the way. There are no dumb questions. There are just dumb answers. So please don't feel self-conscious about putting up your hand, uh, rugby tackling me from the microphone or something like that. I, I love your interaction. So please feel free to do that, okay? I know that on Sunday morning it's probably easier to uh, err on the passive side and kind of listen. And if that's your thing, that's fine. But please don't feel afraid to ask a question if you have a question that's... uh, Or a comment even, of course. Yeah, yeah, do it all all you want. No, the the more the merrier. My comment is that we're called to worship. The The why is that we're called to worship because we were built to worship. Mm-hmm. And because God uh, 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 tells us to worship Him. Sure, sure. Uh, does He tell us to worship Him every week? Uh, he gives us a, a, a Sabbath that He made it holy. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Well, then that, that still begs other questions, doesn't it? Whether the Old Testament Sabbath is for Christians today and what it means that we have an eternal Sabbath that we're waiting for. So these are the kinds of questions that I want to raise. And to do it in a a friendly way, I'm trying to give us each week a big metaphor, a big idea that will somehow build our conversation, but perhaps as well help our memory. And this week, the metaphor that I'm appealing to is that worship is a compass, With my students, at least, having some of these picture words is very, very helpful because it's not just that I want to teach them, but I want them to teach others as well. And so the more tools they have in their kit, pictures or uh, kind of um, 
uh, ideas that are readily transferable, that helps me and helps them too, I hope. <coughs> now, uh, I want to start with a definition, though it's, it's pretty loose. I want to say that worship is simply a God-centred life. We could unpack it more. For example, we could say that it's about both adoration and actions. We could unpack it further and say that it's response to God's revelation. I think all those are helpfully true. But it's the first phrase, uh, worship is a God-centred life, that I really want to hold on to in particular. Because there are big debates about this. Uh, Is worship something you do every day of the week? Or is worship something you do on Sundays? Or is worship just that part of the service that's singing? (laughs) So there are very broad definitions of worship and very narrow definitions of worship. And this is a hot debate in many circles. How do you define worship? Is worship more about the actions of your week? Or is worship more the attitudes and responses on Sunday? Uh, And according to your kind of tight or broad definitions, this sometimes becomes quite heated. So we had... uh, Uh, Don Carson come to Ridley where I teach to do a preaching school. He's known for that, right? And we arrived in chapel and one of my students stands up to begin the chapel service and says, welcome this morning to worship. And at morning tea, not because of Don Carson's uh, kind of influence, but at morning tea after the chapel service, it was this hot debate Some people say, you cannot stand up and say, welcome to worship. You're worshipping every day of the week, right? You can say, welcome to chapel or welcome to church, but not welcome to worship. But if you're on the more Pentecostal end of the Christian spectrum, you'll define worship even more narrowly to deal with a very particular kind of song in a very particular place in the church service. So when I first became a Christian, we had a hymn book in church, right? Uh, There aren't many hymn books around anymore. But in those days, in a hymn book, you'd have the section called praise and the section called worship and the section called daily Christian living and the section called the Lord's Supper and the section called uh, Christ's coming or the section called Christ's passion. In those days, worship was just a tiny bit of your singing, But it's as if these days worship is just that part of the hymn book that's the first 30 songs. So there are big debates about how broad or how narrow we should think of worship. I actually think the Bible uses the worship language in both ways. So when you look at Romans 12, 1 to 2... Uh, you'll be reminded that worship is for every day, right? Let me read it to us. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual 
worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you might discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So at least for Paul in Romans 12, worship is just giving your body to God. And I presume you do that on Sundays and Mondays, right? That's the broad definition. Everything you do in your body can be a kind of worship. But when you get to Revelation chapters 4 and 5, the word worship is applied to singing. Either in Revelation 4, singing about the Creator, or in Revelation 5, singing about the Redeemer. In both instances, the songs of worship are offered before the throne. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and they were created. So I take it that the Bible can use the word worship narrowly or can use the word worship broadly. And I'm happy with both usages of the word. However... In these four Sunday school sessions, we're going to be using kind of the more narrow definition, what we do in church. Please don't hear me saying that I don't think your Monday to Friday work is worship. What you do in your body is worship. But for these weeks at least, for our purposes, we're narrowing a little our focus. So I'm going to take a pause for a moment and ask if you've got any comments or questions about our uh, learning so far. Please, you Lydia. worship singing to the Creator and the Redeemer. And I know not very many, but many songs also make a point to praise the Spirit. And I hmm. wondered if you had a comment for or against that or Yes, uh, so I think there's no biblical reason why you ought not to worship or name the Spirit in your worship. It's just that the Spirit is the shy one who keeps pushing the glory to the Father and the Son. So I'm not, uh, I don't think it's wrong. And you could ask the same question about your praying. Should we pray to the Spirit? I think there's nothing wrong with that. The Spirit is the Lord, according to 2 Corinthians uh, 4. But it seems to me that part of the way God works is that the Spirit helps me in my prayers uh, to the Father through the Son. So I think it's probably more appropriate that we pray to the Father in the end. In the Scriptures. In the Scriptures. Yeah, yeah that's right. He leads us to the Scriptures. The Spirit leads us to the Scriptures as well, yes, of course, and, and then illuminates them for us in our heart and mind. Well, this is my basic idea this morning. I'm a simple man, so there's only going to be one big idea each week. Uh, The big idea is that when we come to church, when we come to worship, our main goal is to practice being the creature and letting God be the creator. That whatever else we do, however long the sermon goes, however long the singing goes, however long the praying goes, we've only got one job to do, and that's to practice being...
being a creature. Now, this might sound kind of patently obvious that you can never escape being the creature, but let me tell you, I think that's basically the human problem, right? That we pretend from time to time that we actually have the rights of the creator to create our own world in our own image. Uh, we're created in God's image, of course, but in, on the seventh day, God rests, having made men and women, so that he might just enjoy the creation with men and women at its climax. In a sense, the point of Genesis chapter 1 is to show us how God loves for us to enjoy <coughs> fellowship with him. He's the creator, and we've just recently been created, right? It seems to me the right attitude to have to God is to see ourselves as creature and not as a creator. And in Romans 1, the inverse is explained, that basically sin is worshipping the creature rather than the creator who is forever to be praised. So it seems like to me, and Romans 1 is important because, it, let me read it then, uh, it, it, it contains the worship language. Romans one twenty four, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the degrading of their bodies amongst themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. So the fundamental description of sin, in this part of Romans at least, is that we try and act like the creator and worship incorrectly. What is worshipping correctly? It's practising being the creature and not the creator, letting God be in his place and we in ours. So what are we going to do this morning when we go upstairs to worship? Well, the only thing you have to do is realise that you're practising in any element in the service, no matter what part of it we're up to, you're practising being the creature. You've just got to let go. You've got to let God be God and pray to him and sing to him and learn from him. I don't want to argue that church is an instrument to, to achieve or do something else. Lots of people, well, church is a way of doing evangelism. Well, it might be on the side. Church is a way of growing in our minds. Well, yes, of course it is. But actually, the most basic reason why we worship is to practice being creatures and dependent. My second point is related to that, uh, and then I'll break again and you can ask some questions is that uh, church reflects the relationship between the one who calls and the ones who are called. So God calls us. That means we are the called ones. And we turn up in response to his voice, in response to his initiative. And if you read the first chapter of 
1 Corinthians, you'll see how often the language of call is used there to describe God or to describe us. It's an important point. Uh, Lots of people will assume that we turn up to church and then through our intense emotions or through our beautiful voices or through a structure of the service, God sees fit to come and join us. He's a bit resistant, right? Because it's Sunday morning after all. Uh, he was having a nice snooze, and, but our loud praises somehow kind of wake him or our loud praises give him a throne to sit on. Now, actually, the basic relationship in church is that God is here before we turn up. God calls us. You and I, brothers and sisters, this morning have heard his voice and we respond to his voice and arrive. He is the one who calls and we are the ones who respond. It's kind of the same point about creator and creature with slightly different language. He's the creator, we're the creatures, we learn dependence. He's the one who calls, we are the called ones, so we listen to his voice and trust his words. He is the creator and knows best after all. Now, this is, this is also pretty controversial in lots of circles because assumption in lots of places is that uh, God will uh, respond and come to be with us if our words, our emotions or our services have particular characteristics. It drives me crazy when people start the church service and say, you know, um, please, Lord, be in our midst this morning. Please, Lord, uh, may you take your place on our praises. It just drives me crazy. He was there in the first place. He's the one who called us. We're only here because he was here first. That's the whole point of being a Christian, right? God's voice comes before our response to his voice. So it's good, and uh, it's lovely that here at Trinity we do this, that we begin the service uh, calling on or recognising the name of Jesus Christ. For he's the one who draws us together as his body. It's not like we turn up and then God scratches his head and realises that he should have done something this morning as well. It was his initiative. It's his power. It's his voice. It's his love which draws us together in the first place. Now, next week, I'll unpack this a little bit more because it makes a big difference to the elements of a church service and how we might approach or how we think about praying or how we think about singing or how we think about Bible reading. But both these points from Romans and from Corinthians are trying to suggest that... uh, The purpose of Sunday meeting is that we practice a God-centred life. And if we can practice it for an hour on Sundays, then perhaps some of the muscle memory that we've practised on Sundays will carry over into Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays as well. You can also say that we're practising what we're going to be doing for eternity. Yes, that's right. That's right. There will be singing forever. Correct, yep. And we'll be depending on God forever. Yeah, indeed. 
taking a pause uh, so that you can gather your thoughts and ask some questions or make some comments. Brother Tyler. Um, what do you think, like, a right understanding of how we do church together as a body here in Trinity? Like, how, how does that help us in our mission um, as Christians on this earth? Like, what, what are the practical implications of having this right? Like, as we think about it, we come here, and this is what we're doing. Like, what are some of the benefits that uh, we experience as a body mm-hmm. um, by getting this right? Yep. So, and I'll unpack some of it in the next few weeks as well. Um, primarily, the church is a gift. It's something God's giving to us. He's giving to us each other. And if we don't regard each other in church as a gift, then what we end up doing is making of church a burden or a challenge. And I think that just impacts how we approach it, how we invite others to come along, what we imagine we're doing here, what we think we should be achieving or not achieving. Uh, So I think it has a whole range of spin-offs. The next few picture words that I'm using are the church is a gym, church is a dinner party, and church is a a classroom, and and church is a, a party. Uh, and so I want to unpack using those metaphors more of the the value. What, what do we what do we lose if we don't turn up? Is the other way of putting it. Um, so lots of people decide not to come to church because they could listen to a podcast, and what they say is get more from the podcast than turning up at church, or they could put on their Christian music on a CD or... People don't use CDs anymore, do they? That just just dated me um, on Spotify, whatever. Uh, And it has better production values than their local kind of (coughs) congregation and so on. But I just think that's so wrong-headed because it's assuming that it's about achieving a certain kind of standard rather than receiving a generous gift Uh, and that we're doing it together with others, not by ourselves, with our, with our earpiece. Uh, the temptation with podcasts, for example, is that you put in your earpiece or put on your headphones and it sounds like that celebrity preacher is whispering to you, right? You and he have this kind of really close relationship. <laughs> He's just talking to you. And so it's, you kind of feel special... The problem is, of course, he's not. And secondly, you haven't understood his applications because you receive it as application for an individual rather than application for a congregation. So it's, it, it, you kind of end up missing all the gifts that God wants to give. Yeah, and with TV evangelism and with podcasts, I believe that God turns out being the second banana and, and the pastor, the speaker ends up being the first banana mm-hmm. takes away from God. Yeah, yeah. It certainly, it certainly does take away from God. The and image, the hair, or the, the charisma of the pastor, you know. I often think about, I often think about celebrity pastor's hair, that's right. Um, Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia. Yeah. yeah, that's right. It's, it's very easy to be distracted by the immediate. 
one of my students said he, he wasn't reading the Bible in the morning for himself anymore. He was just listening to podcasts. And I said to him, he'd become a medieval Christian where he now had a priest who was getting him to God rather than reading the Bible for himself, right? Uh, that's, that's what he was doing. He was effectively not turning up at church because he thought that he could get the good oil from the podcast. But he was just missing the gifts uh, that God wants to give. He says in his word, do not forsake the assembling of one another. Hmm. That's right there. Yep, yep. Yes, uh, and he'd say he wasn't. He was still turning up once or twice a month. That is, the assumption about weekly attendance uh, has gone missing. Yes, sir? Um, what, what, what gifts do we get by coming together uh, to worship that we don't get? You know, I'm, I'm agreeing... But can you be a little more particular? Like, when we come together, what comes to the receiving that we don't, when a great worship song, for example, the state of music, as an example, comes on and we're just, we turn and we're praising God by ourselves? Yeah, it's maturity. Mm-hmm. So I don't think you can be mature alone. That is, uh, I think sermons are primarily, I hope I don't get into trouble for this, I think sermons are primarily to build a congregation of which you will benefit as an individual. But I think corporate maturity is the primary goal of a sermon, or of a church service for that matter, for for worship, as we together learn to be the creatures before the Creator. Uh, But of course, in our world, we think individual maturity and therefore we say, well, I'm individually maturing by listening to my podcast. But actually, you're not corporately maturing. You're not actually maturing as God wants you to mature, which is to learn your place in the body, in the fellowship, right? This is the thing when I give these talks or these seminars, that one of the things that people react most strongly to is that church is for corporate maturity, not for your personal maturity. Uh, and that gets often lots of... Lots of Pushback. Yes, brother. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, sure. So that uh, I do, in the end, benefit individually too. But I can't say I'm not going to turn up at church because I'm not going to get anything out of it today. You turn up at church because we're going to get something out of it today. Uh, and so the, the danger of highlighting the individual maturity at the expense of the corporate maturity is that then you say the podcast is going to do, do me just fine. Could you touch on the historical worship aspect with Israel in the relationship to God versus now? Sure. So uh, one of the... The biggest lessons in Leviticus or in God's instructions for the the temple and the sacrifices is that you have to do things on God's own terms. He's the one who sets the rules for how you worship. He's the one who's at the centre of the Holy of Holies. And you can only approach him recognising the way he wants you, he wants us to approach him. So I think this point... I could expand it, is actually deeply embedded 
in the Old Testament storyline that we worship according to the rules that God has made for worship. We can only approach him because he's first approached us. We can only approach him on the terms that he's laid down. And, of course, in, in the, uh, the worship of Israel, that they held strongly to it being a corporate experience. It was, after all, the, the whole nation of the Hebrews that God brought out of Egypt through the Passover sacrifice. On a potentially pastoral application level, how does this, how would you translate this to someone who says, I'm battling, feeling just really discouraged and depressed, and church just feels overwhelming to me, or my boyfriend broke up with me and I just can't get myself out of bed, or, you know, uh, my, my feelings were hurt by someone and I don't want to go and deal with them. How, do you see what I'm saying? Like... How, how might this be a helpful thing? How would you communicate this to someone who's saying, it just feels really hard to go to corporate worship? Mm-hmm. Yes, so I understand that uh, there will be seasons in a person's life where corporate worship is very challenging. Either they have a kind of a social phobia that makes being in groups hard and so on. Um, But I'd say this, at least at some level, meeting with other Christians in those seasons is really important. Even if it's not in Sunday worship for a small time, but a small group in the week or a prayer triplet as a a minimum. But the other thing is, of course, is you you could say to the person, why don't you come five minutes late and leave five minutes early so that you don't have to talk to anyone? But that you can remind yourself with the practices of the service what your what the what God wants to give and how you've been blessed, what your responsibilities are despite this this season of depression or, or trial. Yeah, uh, one lesson that I've learned uh, in my Christian walk is that. You go to church, especially when you don't want to go. Mm. I, I was battling addiction for, for a decade and a half, and, and I'd want to go to church only when I had some clean time under my belt. And it was like, get your act together, and then you can be in God's presence. And I was at Redeemer then, under Keller. And I just couldn't. And uh, I just believe that you go to church, especially when you don't want to. Mm-hmm. Go when you want to go, but especially when you don't want to go. Mm-hmm. And I never uh, regretted going to church, especially when I didn't want to go. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I, I agree with you, brother. That's great. And it happens to me like that where I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, I'm feeling overwhelmed by this, that, or the other. Why don't I kind of cut myself some some slack and not go. I think, no, no, that's just ridiculous. That's, it doesn't, it do, that's exactly right. It doesn't, doesn't actually in the end help you. Uh, doesn't actually in the end, what I need to do then is to practice being the creature rather than the creator and church will help me set, set my compass right again. True Yeah, the, the, the reason why I've used this picture of the compass is that I think when you're on a long walk or a long journey then repeated 
appeals to the compass is exactly when you need to find your bearings again, right? If you're going two paces, a compass isn't actually of enormous use. But if you know that the journey is long and hard, with lots of distractions and lots of uh, uh, ways that you can be set off track, then looking at your compass repeatedly to work out, are you still tracking north? One degree here or there, after a year, two years, five years, ten years, uh, can make an enormous difference. You can be so far away from the Lord if you've only been at the first day one degree off. So I, I'm trying to argue that coming to church, uh, practising being the creature rather than the creator, uh, learning again to be the called one, uh, responding to God's call, is a way of weekly recalibrating our journey. Weekly uh, setting ourselves due north again. Uh, and I think we need to do that regularly, and I'd say weekly. In Hebrews 2, we're reminded that often people stop being Christians because not because they've made a moral a bad moral choice, but they kind of just drift, like the boat that is no longer tethered to the to the jetty, uh, and without realizing it, you're very quickly a long way away from where you want to be, given the pull of the sea and the winds. So I think, church, yes, please, brother. Um, a couple of times you made implicit, you know, references to how often. Uh, yes. One you just made, and uh, I'm just wondering if you're going to do any more than what you just did. Uh, Which is? Um, I think weekly would be good. Uh, and you said something. Yes. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Yes. And uh, I do think weekly is best. That is, it might be good if we went to church twice a day. I think it's not going to happen anytime soon. Uh, but weekly is a pattern that the scriptures give us. Uh, both in terms of Old Testament worship and New Testament worship as well. Uh, for the reason that, as, as that final point makes, uh, we're setting our compass to north, we're recalibrating our walk weekly, churches like a compass, because the first Christians moved their worship day from Saturday to Sunday, to the Lord's Day, to the first day of the new week rather than the seventh day of the old week. That is, what we're doing on Sundays is recalibrating our journey around the new world, the world that was begun with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And consequently, uh, it's not to say, therefore, uh, it's not the only argument I give for weekly worship, but at least this, that we are being reminded every Sunday of the new world that we've begun to celebrate on the Lord's Day. And I need that, uh, I need that reminder and that shaping every week to orient my heart to true north, to the new heavens and the new earth, when I'll meet the Lord face to face. I'll give in some texts there which point out the novelty of the Lord's Day, the Sunday, as the day for Christians' meeting. But, of course, in Hebrews 4, 9 as well, we're reminded that 
what we're doing on Sundays is practicing for the eternal Sabbath. And so it's not a bad way of honouring Sundays, this being our Sabbath rest, as a way of practicing the Sabbath rest forever. I work, I work hard and I'm a single man, so I work kind of too much, basically. But uh, a good thing about uh, a Sabbath rest is that I'm telling myself I'm not stronger than God. Uh, I need to rest as well, if God did. And Sundays might be a good day to do it. Thank you. Uh, any other thoughts or... Please. So the original Sabbath was from sunset Friday to sunset Saturday. Correct. And that transition into Sunday, um, do you know exactly how that took place and why it took place? Yes. So the earliest Christians wanted to recognize the resurrection of Christ and on the, on the first day of the week... Uh, on the on the Sunday, and uh, because of his resurrection and his resurrection power and the the new power we have as God's New Testament people, so it was a it was a model recognizing <coughs> the centrality of Jesus' resurrection. I just I thought I read something about a Catholic priest um, initiating the Yes, I see. No, it's 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 a long time before there were Catholic priests. Uh, so in those texts I've given you, there even uh, the writers of the New Testament recognise that now this day, this Sunday, this Lord's Day, is the day where it's appropriate for Christians to gather to worship their risen King. Um. In the Western world, I assume it's typical in Australia as well. Like we, we kind of have a rhythm now of five days of work and two days of weekend. Yep. That are in day. Australia, we do two days of work and five days off. <laughs> <laughs> um, have you thought much about sort of the difference between uh, maybe a biblical view of a week uh, and, and, a, and a cultural view of a week? Interesting. So you mean the biblical view being six and one rather than five and two? Well, and also, like, it just occurs to me there are some people who feel very inconvenienced by coming to church on Sunday morning because it's right in the middle of their weekend. Yeah, sure. And you just sort of described it as being, hey, this should be the beginning of our week. <laughs> yeah, and if, you know... It, like in some of our churches in Melbourne, people have a holiday house or a vacation house and they go away for the weekend and they don't get back. They, they think they're doing well to get to church once a month because they're down at the beach the other weekends, whatever it might be. Um, I, I think the pattern of one and six or five and two has been the most successful in history. So in the French Revolution, they tried to make the working week ten days. You get... You work for nine and have the tenth off. Uh, that didn't that didn't last very long. Uh, and it's actually why um, when the French decided after their revolution to have a, a ten day week, that's when the English turned up the volume on having a, a Sabbath rest because they wanted to be unlike the French, right? <laughs> and so the the importance of Sabbath in Victorian England became increasingly important to show that we're not the French. We have, a, we have a very strict 
six and one rule here, right? Um, yeah, of course, and uh, kids have sport, at least in Australia. Kids have sport on Sunday morning, Saturday morning, Sunday morning. Uh, so that means that it's more difficult. It, it might mean that we need to think more flexibly about service times. So I know that there are churches in Melbourne that have Sunday night services so that those folk who've been away for the weekend at their holiday house, their vacation house, can get to church on Sunday nights as part of their, their strategy. You think, well, I, being as a person who doesn't have a holiday house, I don't have much sympathy for them. <laughs> if I did, I'm sure I'd like the arrangement. <laughs> Our son uh, used to go with us at, from age 11 to like 14 or 15 uh, to the oak, the RP in, in, in Cambridge, and he got baptized, and uh, I'd go to Bible school and, and all that, and worship. And he knew the language and really loved the Lord. And he's an oboe player, and he went to conservatory mm-hmm. first boarding school, then conservatory. Now he's in LA, uh, and he's auditioning all over the world for, for an oboe player. And uh, early on in his career, it was oboe on Sunday. Mm-hmm. He's completely left the faith. Mm-hmm. And that's, uh, it's a heartbreaker. And uh, we wish, you know, mm. I mean, what do you, what do you do? What do you say? Yes, uh, that's awful. This is his career. Mm-hmm. He's a world-class oboe player, but he doesn't know the Lord. Mm-hmm. He's falling away. Mm. Yes, so we... Of course, wish that things had otherwise eventuated. But I'd say this, we ought not to develop our theology and our practice around the exceptions. Mm -hmm. That is, uh, there are going to be people who do work on Sundays, either in trades or in professions where they have to. That's just their job. And you kind of go, okay, but let's not then say, therefore, Sunday isn't the right thing to do. Sunday weekly worship isn't the right thing to do. We still want to say it is, right? We just recognise there are going to be exceptions. Uh, you, we, we can't make law around exceptions. You have to establish the principles and then help individual folk fit into that model given their own life situation. Yes, ma'am. Strong opinions, including communion, every time we get together, as some denominations do, or just periodically. Or is there a biblical view of this that we can? We can... No, I don't. I don't know that there's a particular biblical view, um, and there's a lot of theology that you have to sort through first before you make the decision how often uh, you have communion. I'm an Anglican, so I do it more than more often than less often, but. That's just my tribe. We all have tribes. Good. Well, I think we'll um, we'll call it quits there. I'll say a prayer for us, and then we can get ready for worship. Our dear Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you so much for this morning, this opportunity to talk and to listen, uh, to spur each other onto good love and good deeds. Even now, I ask that you'd help us in the next hour or so to worship, to practice being creatures before our Creator, to respond to your call, which comes before our obedience. And I pray that you'd help us to learn these things such that we might teach others. For we ask it in Christ's strong name. Amen.
those of you in your back, in the back, could take your chairs and just fill them around the tables. And if you're up in the front, if you want to stack the chairs over here, that would be great help. Thank you. Yeah, I just, I just, I just, I just,